0: You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com
1: Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 18th day of June, 2011. I would like to welcome all of the listeners back to the podcast and, as always, invite you to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos that I've created and conducted in the past, and links to other alternative independent media websites, such as BoilingFrogspost.com, where you can find independent and alternative media. And on the note of BoilingFrogspost.com, I'm sure many of my listeners and viewers will have seen the latest edition of my latest news video update series. The eye opener, which is being produced in conjunction with Sibel Edmonds BoilingFrogsPost.com, and I'd like to once again remind viewers and listeners out there that yes, the first few episodes of this series are going to be available for free download as usual uh, on my website and on my YouTube channel. But eventually, the plan is for the eye opener to become part of the Boiling Frogs Post new subscriber function, which will be being rolled out later this year. And at that point, people will be able to get future editions of that video through the Boiling Frogs Post subscriber uh, function. So uh, there will be more details about that and when and is as it becomes available. But for the time being, I hope you are enjoying these reports. And the next one, well, at the time I'm recording this on Saturday, June 18th, the next one should be available in the next uh, several hours. So hope, please stay tuned for that. And, uh, of course, we are also doing the Sunday update in New World next week and various uh, occasional videos like the Last Word series and Economics 101 and Film Literature in the New World Order and uh, some occasional video interviews and other such things. So, again, a flurry of activity uh, coming out on a regular basis. So I really do hope people are subscribed to CorbettReport.com so that they can continue to receive all of the updates as, when, and if they become available. And on that note, yes, once again, Apple is still working at its glacial slow pace on trying to get uh, the podcast issues resolved with iTunes and the iTunes Store. So for anyone who may be hearing my words, but are still scratching their heads wondering how to get this into their iTunes, well, again, I'd like to stress, please don't ever subscribe through the iTunes Store, because as iTunes has shown a few times now, they're able to well, just play around with my podcast feed so that it no longer works for no discernible reason, and then when I contact them through the support, they're unable to help me, so... Please never subscribe through them, but if you are, for some reason, compelled to, um, well, the the best way and the easiest way to subscribe is to either use the, the big RSS feed button on the top, bottom right of the banner on the top of every page of CorbettReport.com, or if that doesn't work for you, if you whatever comes up, I mean, there are different things depending on what browser you're using and what software and stuff, but if whatever comes up, you don't find the easy way to get that into your iTunes, well, in iTunes, you can just uh, click on Advanced, the Advanced text. and then subscribe to podcast and just physically enter that URL in and uh, it will subscribe and you will be able to get all of the videos and interviews and articles and everything as it comes out. So that's the best way to do it and I really hope people are subscribed because once again it's completely free, it's alternative independent media and, um, and it's a lot of information coming out on a regular basis. And of course, on the subject of subscribing, I'd like to once again thank wholeheartedly all of those people who are continuing to sign up to support the Corbett Report by donating a small 100 Japanese yen per month fee. That's about $1 per month. Uh, Just becoming subscribers and donating out of the goodness of their heart, because it truly is that that is going to make this, uh, this podcast really possible in the future. And uh, as more and more people subscribe, the, I get closer and closer to that cherished holy grail of actually being able to do this as an honest-to-God, part-time job. So so I really do appreciate that support that's coming in, and um, and let's hope we can continue to expand that, and uh, I will continue to expand what I'm doing as a result of it. So once again, Alternative Independent Media is brought to you by you, so please support whatever Alternative Independent Media you find is out there producing good factual and well-documented information that you can use. And on that note, as always, we have a lot to get into in today's episode, so let's get straight into it. Welcome, my friends, to episode 191 of the Corbett Report, How to Spin Gold from Straw. Sometimes it seems that all you need to know about economics, you can learn from fairy tales.
2: There once lived a miller much given to boasting about his daughter, a pretty but modest girl called Anna. He would say things like, She can sing like a bird and dance like sunlight on the water. The miller's friends and neighbors listened to his boasting, and as they liked Anna, they merely smiled politely and said nothing. One day, however, unnoticed by the miller, a stranger listened to his stories and heard him say, Why, my daughter spins so fine she could spin straw into gold. The stranger who was a messenger from the palace, left hurriedly to report this extraordinary news to the king. Naturally, the king was intrigued and summoned Anna to attend the court. The coach was sent to fetch her, and the miller was prouder than ever to think that his daughter should be so honored. But Anna was sad at leaving home. On arrival at the palace, she was brought before the king. He looked at her sternly and said, Your father boasts that you can spin straw into gold. Well, tonight you shall spin for me. I have set aside a room full of straw and a spinning wheel, and if by the morning the straw has not changed to gold, you shall surely die, for no one may make a fool of the king. Poor Hannah was locked in the room and began to weep, for she knew that her father's boasting had brought her to this fate and there was nothing that she could do to save herself.
1: Well, we'll leave that particular story there, but as I'm sure my listeners are well aware, that is the tale of Rumpelstiltskin, and Anna does get out of her predicament by finding a magical dwarf who actually can turn the straw into spun gold. And although we don't live in a world of magical dwarves that can turn straw into gold, we do actually live in an economic system where the equivalent of straw can be turned into the equivalent of gold, and it's our task today to find out how that actually is done, But it's important to reflect on that story of Rumpelstiltskin and to to really see how the king, although he is king and lord of the realm and all of that, still relies on the people below him to turn that straw into gold. And it's an interesting thought that people can really become masters of a society by somehow convincing them that straw is gold. Well, let's use that as the metaphor for today's main point. And it's a point that's actually so simple, so basic, that when I I explain it in just regular layman's terms, you will not even think that there's any trick to it. But it really is such a simple, such a basic trick that it can be used to such devastating effect. And as we're going to see, see today, has been used time and time again. And ultimately, the secret, the magical secret behind this turning of straw into gold is nothing other than to convince the king, or whoever it may be, that straw is as valuable as gold. And how can you possibly do that? Well, all of this can be answered by taking a look at a very simple, very fundamental concept from the realm of economics. And that concept is that scarcity equals value. And to put it in a very simplistic term, uh, the economic definition of scarcity is really about the same as price or value. To say that something is scarce in a strictly economic sense is simply to say that it has value in an open market. If someone is willing to pay anything for a product, even a penny, then we can say that product is scarce. And basically that means it's in demand and it's not infinite. Uh, It's not infinitely and freely available, therefore people are willing to pay something for it. And that's basically what scarcity amounts to. But, of course, that concept can be used to manipulate the price of objects that otherwise are not really so valuable. For example, straw is not something that anyone would pay a great deal of money for, but gold, of course, is much more scarce and therefore much more valuable. Now, there's many other things that go into the concept of value, but scarcity is one of them, and if we can manipulate that variable, well, we can manipulate a lot of things. So how do we go about manipulating that variable? Well, let's take a look at a very interesting article that came through the AP in November of 2010. And it's about a very, very, very mundane everyday subject. And again, one that one would not think is a key to understanding the economic reality of our times. But I would argue that's a failure of imagination. So let's take a look at this article from November 26th, 2010 from the Associated Press McRibs and the art of artificial scarcity quote Bradley Chong had a McRib for lunch on November 13th he had another the next day and the next day and the next in fact he claims to have eaten a McRib practically every day since McDonald's brought back their sauce-laden processed pork patty earlier this month Chong knows his access to the McRib won't last forever on December 5th, it will disappear from the McDonald's nearest home in Honolulu and from every McDonald's in America. When will it return? No telling. Is a McRib shortage to blame? No. McDonald's sells the sandwich year-round in Germany. But despite fans clamoring for it in the United States, McDonald's spokeswoman Ashley Yingling explains that it's always been a promotional menu item, available for just a few weeks at a time. Welcome to Artificial Scarcity, Consumer Edition. The tactic is used so often in American marketing that you might expect consumers to be immune to it. The Gap sells limited edition jeans. Thomas Kincaid is big on limited edition prints. And in recent months, Frito-Lay has been offering cheesy enchilada Cheetos with the words, limited time only, printed on the bag. Could that availability be limited by anything other than their desire to grab our attention? And yet, rather than ignoring the ads or balking at their false premise... Consumers enthusiastically encourage the practice by jumping for limited-edition goodies. How is it that people still get so excited rather than annoyed when they're manipulated by the threatened disappearance of something they want? It's a mix of old instincts and modern challenges, says psychologist Mary C. Gray, who teaches at Misericordia University in Dallas, Pennsylvania. Our nervous system gets activated, she says, and we move into that hoarding, greedy thing, even though we know it's not true. In announcing that the animated film Beauty and the Beast would be available on DVD beginning in October, a Disney website uses the phrase, Finally releasing from the Disney vault for a limited time. Fans know the drill. When a movie emerges from the vault, they whip out their credit cards to grab a copy before the company pulls it again from the store shelves. It's received as an opportunity, rather than a marketing gimmick. End quote. All right, well, again, of course, the link will be in the documentation section so you can continue reading through that article and all of the seemingly mundane examples of the way that this artificial scarcity is used to artificially prop up the prices of things that in and of themselves are not really that valuable, and yet, because they are promised to us for a limited time or only given to us in limited supply, well, suddenly, they are just so valuable. Well, we obviously understand how this is used in our everyday lives for things like McRibs or Disney DVDs or Thomas Kincaid prints, but could this actually be used as a way of gaining untold wealth for the people who are unscrupulous enough to employ this in other schemes? If your answer is no, I think you're just not thinking big enough.
3: Tonight on Frontline... Diamonds? Aren't they as friends? Did something change? Are diamonds what do you think they are? Precious and rare?
4: I wound up discovering it was just the opposite. Everywhere where there's carbon, which is everywhere, you find diamonds.
3: <laughs> Frontline examines the cartel that controls the diamond trade. The supply, the price, and the myth. What makes this cartel different is it's controlled by a single company. Tonight... A Diamond Empire. In the spring of 1992, more than a hundred wealthy benefactors from around the world were invited to the Hotel Pierre in New York City to a fundraiser for AIDS research. Elizabeth Taylor... The High Priestess of the Mystique of Diamonds had invited them personally to an auction of fine jewelry that raised more than a half million dollars. The evening itself was a glittering tribute to the allure of diamonds.
0: I'm wearing the diamonds because my sweetheart has given them to me, and it means love, and it means forever. Diamonds? Aren't they girlfriend's friends? Did
4: something change? Diamonds? Diamonds! you yeah,
3: woman's best friend. But what we think about diamonds is in fact a myth. At the center of that myth is an illusion. That diamonds are valuable because they are rare. When writer Edward Epstein set out to investigate the diamond trade, he discovered that diamonds aren't rare at all. Well, what I
4: learned was that the diamond business wasn't the business of extracting, as I originally expected, something of enormous value and then simply uh, seeing how much of this object you could get out of the ground and selling it. That was what the business appeared to be uh, when I started my venture. That their real business was restricting what came out of the ground, restricting what was discovered, restricting what got cut. Restricting what actually found its way into the retail market and at the same time through movies, through advertising, through Hollywood, through the manipulation of perceptions, creating the idea that there was this enormous demand for these shiny little uh, objects that they seemed to have an abundant supply. So I wound up on this voyage of discovery, starting off with the idea that there was this object of great value and it was just a question of how many could you get out and I wound up discovering it was just the opposite
3: This is the story of how that grand illusion was created and the story of how one family gained control of the world's diamond trade and for nearly a century has maintained its hold on an empire that defines the very idea of what diamonds really are Proud to continue the diamond decade by presenting its program for 1992. Most of the world's rough gem diamonds come through organizations run by the South African company De Beers, known in the United States by its famous advertising slogan, A diamond is forever. Fewer than 200 diamond merchants qualify for a site, the privilege of buying directly from De Beers. Everyone else must buy in turn from them. When we're site We get a site every five weeks from the Beers. If you can come up with a huge sum of money, it would not, would, certainly would not qualify you to be a site holder. It's rather the man that started 25 years ago with very little with one or two cutters who has 15 or 20 now here and who is constantly on the scene buying and 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 he's the man who who means to stay here with his children to follow him he's the man that qualifies to be a sideholder it's like being um, admitted to a club the headquarters of that club is London because it is a virtual monopoly De Beers cannot operate legally in the United States All site holders must travel here to buy their rough gems, to a building known only as 17 Charterhouse Street. This is a fortress where 80% of the world's gem diamonds are sorted, graded, and sold. A site holder sends his request for the grade of diamonds he needs, but there are no guarantees It is De Beers that decides whether or not he gets them. It's a decision that can make or break his business.
4: This is your site for October. In this shoebox is basically the diamonds that they're going to cut that month. And in this mixture of diamonds there are large diamonds there are small diamonds there are colored diamonds there's what the beers wants to be on the market so they distribute to the cutters what is in short supply and withhold from the cutters what is in abundance so they control the market through this and there are all sorts of hidden signals in this box like if suddenly the site holder, as the person's called, gets many diamonds worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, he'll know he did a special favor and he's being rewarded for that favor. The other hand, if he finds he's been given a large number of uh, uneconomical diamonds to cut, he'll realize he's fallen out of favor. De Beers had dominated the market in African diamonds for a hundred years. Their philosophy was simple. Control diamond supply, and you control prices.
3: We have an idea that diamonds are rare, but they're not. What created the value in diamonds is withholding the supply, making sure that the supply is regulated and, 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 and there's never a flood of diamonds on the market. That's one thing that De Beers did right from the beginning.
4: With supply under their control, De Beers, under the inspired leadership of their chairman Ernest Oppenheimer, launched a brilliant ad campaign in
5: 1948, designed to increase demand. His genius was in coming up with the advertising campaign that made a diamond synonymous with human love, and in particular, the right of marriage and engagement, because he rightly concluded that he could get people to pay quite a bit to buy a diamond in order
1: to pledge their love. Well, that is an excerpt, as I'm sure many of my listeners will be aware, from the Excellent Peace Revolution podcast by Richard Andrew Grove, and that is from episode 27 of that podcast, Diamonds, the Jewel of Denial-slash-Outgrowing-Stockholm-Syndrome. And I would urge listeners, as always, to take a look at the full episode, which I will link to in the documentation section, because it is extremely interesting to see exactly how the diamond cartel came about and how it has functioned to artificially make people believe that diamonds are valuable and that we should spend a lot of money at certain exactly prescribed times in order to make our love apparent to our loved ones. And ridiculous idea on so many levels, and yet it has functioned to make very few people very, very rich for a very long time. And this is not by any means a trivial thing. It's a very real sense in which something that is relatively not that valuable has been spun into a type of gold and has made people very real amounts of money. So it's important to see how that's been accomplished, and again, that's why I would urge you to go and listen to that entire podcast episode, which includes the rest of that Frontline documentary, including lots of other clips and and pieces of information that helps you put into perspective the De Beers uh, diamond cartel and how it has functioned. But I think from that example, we can extract a few key pieces of information to see exactly how this entire scheme is run. And basically, it amounts to monopolizing or taking over the production of some item and controlling its availability, and then forming a cartel or even a monopoly, if you can get one, around the distribution of that uh, that item. And by doing so, you can convince the public that something is scarce and therefore valuable, and with a nice marketing campaign wrapped up in all of those propagandistic t- techniques perfected by people like Edward Bernays uh, over a hundred years ago now, well, you can basically make people, like Lemmings, go out and buy the, your item on certain prescribed date dates or at certain points in their lives, and they will spend, well, however much you tell them to spend. If the rule of thumb is three months' salary, then people will spend three months' salary buying your item, because they've been told it's the way to show that they love someone. And uh, again, it's ridiculous, and yet it has worked, and it's al- always relies on what Richard Andrew Grove has started referring to as the occulting of information, hiding information from the public. In this case, the key information that diamonds are in fact not scarce at all. They are semi-precious stones and thus really do not deserve to be uh, such items of such value and, and priced so highly. And if people actually knew that and really internalized it, they would not be buying diamond rings and diamond necklaces and diamond jewelry because it is not worth it. But uh, again, people can be misled by simply saying that something is scarce and creating that idea in their mind. And by no means are diamonds the only case in which this has been done, although that's obviously one key example and uh, served to make Cecil Rhodes very uh, rich. And, And of course, Cecil Rhodes was the man behind setting up the Rhodes' Will, which not only established the Rhodes Scholarship, but also the Round Tables, which were then described by... Uh, by Carol Quigley in Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American establishment, and and we all know what that involves and all of the various circles upon circles that that entails and the way that our society is directed. So, again, it's not a trivial thing at all to point out the Diamond Cartel and how that's functioned, but as I say, this has been used many, many times and continues to be used in things large and small, even down to the level of the McRib. So let's take a look at some other examples and ways that artificial scarcity has been used to prop up the prices of things that are not valuable. And let's start with a very small and, again, very daily example that I'm sure all of us will recognize. And coming
2: up, the unmasking of bottled waters. Consumers react to word that many of their pricey favorites come straight from the tap us have access to some of the cleanest tap water in the world nevertheless many people have come to depend on bottled water so much so it's become a multi-billion dollar industry sure it's convenient but many also believe they're paying for water from naturally pure sources as rob marciano reports that's often not the
5: case don't let that scenic logo fool you this water is not bottled from a mountain stream now pepsico plans to spell it out for consumers adding the words public water source to the label of its aquafina brand in case you didn't know aquafina is actually just purified tap water
0: that would make me never want to buy aquafina again knowing that it was bottled public yeah water, no, just tap water, just water in a cool. bottle that's what am i paying for Wow.
5: how does that make you feel
0: like i've been bamboozled and hoodwinked all this time
5: in a statement on friday pepsico said quote if this helps clarify the fact that water originates from public sources then it's a reasonable thing to do coca-cola's dasani does the same thing purifies and bottles public drinking water one environmental group found at least twenty five percent of bottled water is actually just tap water sometimes purified sometimes not we are now exposing an underbelly truth that is a big percentage of bottled water in this country is tap water. San Francisco's mayor banned city workers from buying bottled water, citing environmental concerns and saving the city half a million dollars a year. And let's face it, it's expensive. Brands like Fiji can cost eight bucks a bottle or more at high-end hotels. Ironic that droughts have led to water shortages on the island that exports it. In total, Americans snapped up 11 billion dollars worth of bottled water last year. All in a country that has some of the cleanest public water in the world. Spring water, artesian well water, purified tap water. Not too long ago, it would have seemed a little wacky to sell bottled water. But now, it's become part of our culture. And sales of these bottles rank second only to carbonated soft drinks. So in this saturated market, it's increasingly important for you to know exactly what you're paying for. Rob Marciano, CNN, Douglasville, Georgia.
1: What? You mean those bottles of water that people have been buying for $2 or whatever it is a pop these days are actually just buying bottled tap water? Well, I never. Well, of course, the cat has been let out of the bag on that one for a while now, and yet people still, in large droves, continue to buy the same types of bottled water, which is puzzling and perplexing in and of itself after the game has been revealed. People still will pay for their own their own stupidity but uh, at any rate yes uh, bottled water is by and large tap water and uh, and people will continue to pay exorbitant prices for it because it seems like something that has been purified and refined and is therefore scarce and valuable so again artificial scarcity at work when really the water the world is awash in water and well, a certain percentage of that anyway, is potable water, and yet we are willing to pay for companies to bottle up the tap water that is really freely available. And uh, if you're lucky enough to live in a municipality without uh, fluoridated water, well, then you don't really, uh, well, uh, well, I wouldn't go about saying that tap water is in and of itself unproblematic, but at any rate, it is certainly not scarce. So there's that, but, uh, but there are, again, many other ways in which this has functioned and continues to function to prop up the perceived value of things which are either valueless or, in some cases, even detrimental to our health. And in, for that example, let's turn to our old friends at the Council on Foreign Relations.
6: Good morning, uh, Rory Lantzman. I'm a member of the New York State uh, Assembly. We had a hearing, a 12-hour hearing on H1N1 earlier this week, and much of it focused on the the mandatory vaccination that the New York State Department of Health has ordered of almost all health care workers in New York State. And I was wondering if uh, you could offer an opinion on whether you think such a policy is uh, is effective and, and sound.
5: I have a very strong opinion. (laughs) And that is, I think, that's appropriate. It's an interesting question, though. Would you uh, be against mandating?
0: Well I uh, I think this is very interesting because, I mean, especially for the healthcare worker example, I mean, there there are many, many good reasons why healthcare workers should be considered immunization for their own safety, but also to protect and and first to no harm to the patients that they are treating. Um, Having said that, does it work to mandate? I think what would work better would be to, to if to say that there was a shortage and people tend to line up more for, for something that's in demand. <laughs> we saw that there was one season where really people lined up all night right. to get a flu shot, and I mean,
1: well, there is a shortage. So.
0: No, actually, because we only need we thought we were going to need two doses per every adult, and it turns out we only need one dose. So actually, we have twice as many doses and enough for the whole population at this point.
6: Trista Albert was hoping to get a flu shot today.
0: Yeah, it was too much. Um, With two little ones, I can't wait in line for hours. And I think it's worse to stay
1: out in the cold.
6: Albert saw the crowds, turned around and left. Calgary's H1N1 vaccination clinics opened for the first time this morning at 8.30 with long lineups at all four sites.
2: And there's
4: four places for a million people in Calgary to get an immunization shot. Surely we could do better than that for a million people, one in each quadrant.
2: Being this is such a dangerous flu, I would say definitely they should have had many more clinics.
3: A city of a million people and there's only four clinics. Um, I'd like to know what Brainiac decided on that.
6: (laughs) Health officials are recommending high-risk groups, including pregnant women, the elderly, and those with flu-related complications, get the free vaccine. Dr. Judy McDonald says the mass clinics are the most efficient way to immunize Calgarians. We have a limited workforce. The best way to achieve po- uh, vaccinating the whole population is to concentrate our resources. If we start to just having a few nurses here and there, it does make it very much less efficient. And we do want to make it as accessible
5: as we can. This too early for her.
6: William McIntyre and his family showed up four hours before the clinic opened to avoid standing in line.
5: I was here at 4.30. Number one, that's my car right there. So I got the best parking spot at the clinic. And I want to get the kids vaccinated. And all I know is I'm not sure if you've had a chance to talk to anybody who's actually
4: had the H1N1. But a a friend of mine actually had it. And it's just absolutely like hell. This is the worst thing you possibly can catch. I am very concerned because I heard uh, that uh, if a woman, uh, this pregnant, catches the
2: viruses, can die.
6: Health officials are asking for patients, adding they expect wait times to reduce once the initial rush is vaccinated this week. Many of those waiting in line complained about the inefficiencies of the flu clinic. The clinic's been open for a half hour, and still, no one has gotten a shot yet. Rick Donkers, calgaryherald.com.
1: So let me get this straight. The CFR in January of 2009 holds a conference on the H1N1 swine flu vaccine. And they have this roundtable discussion in which one of the members just happens to say, well, why don't we just tell them that we're running out of uh, supplies and then people will line up around the block for it. And lo and behold, the very next flu shot season, there are lineups around the block because there are these bottlenecks of distribution of this incredibly valuable H1N1 vaccine, which, as we know, contained those uh, adjuvants which were not tested and not approved or were approved in a rushed process because of the the vital scare of the H1N1, which, as we know, turned out to be the least deadliest flu season in many, many, many years. So again, once again, something that is completely valueless can be made and perceived to be valuable and then sold and make some companies billions of dollars off of this phony hype coupled with the artificial scarcity. Artificial being the key word. So, once again, gold was spun from straw. Now, of course, this technique is often used to make money, and that's a very logical idea for this because scarcity equals value equals money. So, this is, by and large, how and why this technique is employed. But in other fields and other ideas, well, it can also be employed to make something a geostrategic asset which then justifies all sorts of things. And of course, in this regard, we're thinking along the lines of petroleum, which for many, many, many decades now we have been told is something in very short supply and we're going to run out any day now. And despite the fact that over and over and over again we learned that the, uh, the estimates of reserves of oil have been manipulated, are being manipulated, and absolutely are something that can be used as a type of geostrategic game. How much reserves are left, and how, how who's counting them, and in what way are they being reported? Well, we know that this is a game, and we know that there are companies that are making record profits every single year playing this game on the public. And yet people will still vociferously defend the idea that, well, of course, peak oil is absolutely real, it's here, and we're about to run out any second now. And people will breathlessly follow the reporting of Michael Rupert and those types of peak oil theorists, without stopping to think how it might be in the interests of the system itself to propagate the idea of scarcity in order to give themselves leverage with which to direct society in the direction of Wars for oil. And wars for oil may actually not only be wars to control the oil, but to control it in order to form the cartel, in order to cut off the supply. And that, that is a three-dimensional chess type move that a lot of people will not be able to see, see around or see through. So let's start breaking this down, and let's start establishing some of the ideas behind the artificial scarcity of oil.
0: Slipping away. The surplus oil production capacity could totally disappear in the next two years. That's according to a new report put together by the U.S. Joint Forces Command. So, what does it all mean? And how will this impact other issues? Radio host Alex Jones is in Austin, Texas, to weigh in on it all. Hey there, Alex. You know, as we know, it's never just about oil. In this report that we're referring to, military leaders specifically say this could exacerbate other unresolved tensions and have a serious economic impact on countries like China and India. I want to know what your take is on all this.
7: Well, Christine, it's good to be here. Uh, this is a subject that I've researched in great depth and uh, really it's broken down into three parts. Number one, we also see hype coming out of uh governments in the west claiming that we have peak oil and that there's not enough oil in the ground. But I live in Texas, I mean, you can drill almost anywhere and find oil and natural gas, and they're finding giant reserves in the Gulf of Mexico. Russia has massive reserves, the North Sea. Uh I mean, the world is awash in petroleum. But there is a shortage in refining capacity, especially in Western Europe and the United States. And the Associated Press in two thousand and six uh sued and they also sued in 2000 and got separate groups of documents from 1995 and 96 uh, almost 15 years ago uh where the top 10 oil companies in the US and England got together uh, and these were internal memorandums with their cartels and said there's too much oil so what we're going to do is we're going to push for government regulations and control and we're not going to build new uh, refining capacity to refine the plentiful oil to create a bottleneck. So regardless, we'll get high prices because the big oil companies also predominantly control uh, the refining. And so the Pentagon's coming out and saying by 2015, we're going to have this big shortage. uh, That's really just propaganda and a pretext to invade uh, more nations and an excuse to do that. But also last week, Bilderberg sleuth, Jim Tucker, whose predictions have never been wrong uh, from inside Bilderberg, his sources said that they were planning to run it up to over $100 a barrel in the next year, and they were going to make claims that they didn't have refining capacity, and then oil was running out. And then a week later, we see that in the London Guardian, we see the Pentagon uh, coming out and pushing uh, this propaganda. This is propaganda. It's just that uh, with the Anglo-American uh, oil concerns, Dutch Royal Shell, of course, uh, British Petroleum, Exxon Mobil, and others, they have a cartel. They've been caught more than 50 years fixing prices together and the reason they invade Iraq and other nations uh, and Afghanistan to control the pipelines isn't just to control the uh, the oil out of the ground itself but to control who's able to get that oil to cut it off from China and others so it's about the control of oil uh, not just the sale of oil uh, this is the larger geopolitical, uh, strategy that's taking place here.
0: I, I was going to, to your point, I was going to mention, I mean, it's pretty interesting that this warning is coming from the United States military. Uh, two years is not very long. Why aren't we hearing anything from, for example, the U.S. Department of Energy on this?
7: Well, the Pentagon uh, gets around half of our tax money, and it doesn't defend America, it defends the private offshore banks that have captured. Uh, this country. And so basically, uh, they're always a mouthpiece for propaganda. I mean, in the last decade, they've been one of the biggest groups promoting man made global warming, along with NASA. And the head climatologist at NASA and many Pentagon officials say they want a post industrial world to be able to control the population. And so when the Pentagon says something, that's basically the offshore banks saying it. They don't work for the American people. And so uh, they push man-made global warming. They push fake terror. Governor Ridge, the head of Homeland Security, admitted that with the Pentagon, they would issue fake reports in the last eight years under Bush, uh, you know, claiming that terror alerts were higher. Governor Ridge, the former head of Homeland Security, admits that was a lie. Uh, this is all just part of fear-mongering so that when people are paying six, seven, eight dollars a gallon for gas, and 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 and, and oil's over a hundred dollars a barrel, uh, that. In people's minds, the implanted lie will be there that it's some type of real scarcity. But really, it's like uh, De Beers and, and the Oppenheimer fortune uh, with the diamond monopoly. Diamonds are semi precious, but they're only found in a few areas geographically in South America, Africa. Uh, and a few other areas around the world, and so they artificially come in with government regulations with government th- that they pay off, and they brag about this uh, to not allow diamonds mined by other interests to be brought to market, so diamonds are one of the most expensive gems out there uh, when uh, the, th- th- they 're basically almost
0: worthless. So just very briefly, Alex, one final question: You think that you people in the United States, just average people, uh, don 't have to worry about this report that says that they could run out of oil?
7: Oh, no, no, no. They do have to worry. We're not running out of oil, but we haven't built a new refinery in over 25 years because the government and the oil companies won't allow it. So they've created an artificial scarcity, just like with diamonds and many other things. They're creating artificial scarcity with water now. And so they're going to lie and say that we can't get you more oil and just basically rob people. So, no, we do have to worry. Uh, Oil prices are already exploding.
0: All right. Alex Jones, as always, good to talk to you. Thank you.
1: Alright, I know that there will be many people who disagree strongly with the idea that we might actually have an overabundance of oil, And uh, there are many people who will always dispute all of the basic premises of such an argument. But we have had that discussion before on the Corbett Report, and we've talked about the uh, different sources of oil, abiotic oil. We've talked about the ways in which oil reserves have been suppressed. We've listened to Lindsay Williams describing what's available on the north slopes of uh, Alaska that are not being tapped into on purpose are being hidden and covered up and of course there are always the the other sources and other exotic ways of getting oil and uh, and the long and short of it is not to re-engage in that discussion, but to merely ask the question of, does the oil situation fall into the realm of the scarce, artificial scarcity? Well, is there a cartel that has monopolized control of access to the product? And do they have a bottleneck in, through which they can monopolize or cartelize the distribution of that pro- product? And obviously the question is a resounding yes, and has been for a long time. Of course, we have the the seven sisters that have functioned in America, and of course, that was the root of the Rockefeller fortune. And we all know what the Rockefellers were always about, and it was not about uh, giving some charity and freedom and and ha- helping everyone in the world, despite what their their invention of the PR industry has led people to believe. Or we have OPEC, of course, which uh, has to, uh, has commanded oil prices up and down at their will for a long time. So. We have all of the elements in place for exactly that type of manipulation and the idea that if we can convince people that something is scarce, we can actually drive prices up. So one indication of the fact that perhaps we're not really running out of oil in the way that it's being hyped in in some elements of the media and by certain corners of the uh, the debate, we can look at something like uh, this story, which came out in April of this year. Saudis cut oil output, claim market is oversupplied. And for some context on that, you might go back to February at the beginning of the Libyan conflict when it was revealed, oh, by the way, Libyan production has been cut in half. So despite that, and despite all of the disruptions and things that are going on in the Middle East and in the Arab uprisings, we still had Saudi Arabia arguing even back in April that there was actually too much of a supply, and we'll just read the first few paragraphs from this Reuters article, quote, "...Saudi Arabia's oil minister Ali al-Naimi said on Sunday the world oil market was oversupplied and that the world's top oil exporter had already reduced production due to weak demand." Consumers have urged OPEC to quickly add supply to quell the rally that was taking oil to its highest level in two and a half years amid unrest in North Africa and the Middle East. The market is overbalanced. Our production in February was 9.125 million barrels per day. In March, it was 8.292 million barrels per day. In April, we don't know yet, probably a little higher than March. The reason I give you these numbers is to show you that the market is oversupplied. Uh, two Saudi-based industry sources told Reuters last week the kingdom had cut production by 500,000 barrels per day in response to weak demand, end quote. Well, okay, so there is uh, there is that debate, and in June, of course, Saudi was actually re- arguing with OPEC to try to increase production and to cut prices once again, but the, the point is simply that the oil industry is one that has been mo- monopolized and cartelized in such a way that there are very few people who can, with the flip of a switch, either create de- create supply or turn it off, and thus create scarcity. And as Alex Jones mentioned in that clip, another aspect of that is refinery capacity. And if there is a refinery capacity that is being intentionally and with foreknowledge reduced, it is by nature creating a bottleneck through which that artificial scarcity can once again take hold, and the value of this black gold can be increased. So we have an economy that's built around this substance that is so easy to to be monopolized or to be taken over by a very few oligarchical or oligarchical interests. And in that way, the, unfortunately, our economy has been directed for decades by a very few people who often have links to this oil cartel, and it's absolutely no, uh, no uh, con- con- contingent thing that the Bush family has been tied in with the oil indres- interests for so long and has risen to such prominence in the past few decades. I suppose there are many other ways in which we can examine how this technique is applied, but I trust that the general point has been made that by taking hold of a substance and controlling the way that it's distributed, we can make something appear valuable that in reality is actually not that valuable. And it's a very simple technique, it's a very basic concept, I don't think one needs really degrees in economics or anything to understand it, and yet it's one that has functioned and served the, the elitist interests well for a long, long time. So it's one that it would behoove us to be aware of, because like any magic trick, it doesn't work if we can see through it, and if we can get past the perception of our, of scarcity and come to the realization that the things that we're being told are valuable and scarce are really not that valuable and scarce, then they will go down in value. And we will not be tricked if we can be at least better informed about these issues. Well, that's all for today. It's a lot of information to take in, but I hope that this will at least begin you along the path of starting to think about how this technique is used, and hopefully providing you with a guard so that you will not be suckered in the next time you are told something is of limited edition and therefore valuable. That's it for this week. I am your host James Corbett thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me next week for another edition of The Corbett Report.